Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Seattle Sports Saturday with you for the next two hours here on 710 ESPN Seattle. I'm Curtis Rogers, joined as always by this guy. He's currently beating me in our fantasy basketball matchup. That'd be Taylor Jacobs. It's close, though, Curtis. It seems like I'm blowing you out, but today I think you got like five or six more guys going. I'm nervous. I'm nervous. we got a good matchup going in fantasy basketball, in our, in our work league, as we call it. Yes, uh, but obviously that is second to what has gone on here in Seattle sports over the last week, uh, especially with the hire of Shane Waldron as Seattle's offensive coordinator. Other moves being made, too. Uh, the run game coordinator position being filled by Andy Dickerson, longtime Rams assistant. So plenty of changes coming to Seattle's offense over the next uh, few months, and we're going to see it play out uh, as they make these decisions for the team uh, heading into the 2021 season as we sort of wind down what 2020 was and, and build it, ramp it back up for 2021. But the offense is a big question mark, but there are also some question marks elsewhere on the roster. We're going to get into some of those today here on Seattle Sports Saturday, mainly on the defensive side of the ball, actually, with Bobby Wagner and Jamal Adams. Jamal Adams making some comments yesterday. Uh, we'll get into those coming up in the noon hour. But Taylor, uh, first glance, Shane Waldron, uh, was it someone you expected, or or was this a move that uh, you were kind of surprised by? I was a little surprised by it, just in the sense of the name, but I'm not surprised by it in the sense of the hire, if that makes sense. That they went with someone who is up and coming, that they did go with someone who was younger had a little bit of quote-unquote innovation built into their game, right? Not a classic retread. And they did their due diligence. They interviewed some of those head coaches to see if, if any of them could sway them away from that mentality. And and I love that. And we talked about it on this show for some time. And, you know, when Mike Leach was at Wazoo, I felt like it was a similar situation where he was good but he wasn't good enough to get them to that next level. And and that's no disrespect to what he accomplished. And again, Schottenheimer, number one scoring offense and in, in points for the Seahawks, they accomplished that. You can't take that away. But the difference between good and great could be in that higher, right? And that's when being great or being good can be the enemy of being great is when you settle on being good. And look, you got to take a risk. And this is a bit of a risk. Graz was talking about it with Clayton uh, in the last show here about how he's a little nervous about this hire. But to me, you got to make moves like this in order to be relevant and stay ahead of the game. Uh, what do you think, Curtis? Were, were you shocked when you saw this? I guess the news broke earlier in the week, but officially announced uh, yesterday afternoon. Yeah, I was a little surprised based off of the name because it wasn't one of the initial names that we had heard. Um, you know, we had heard that the Seahawks were specifically targeting ex-head coaches, uh, some other big names like Pep Hamilton, guys who you know as offensive coordinators in the NFL and, and guys we've come to see. But I, I got to be honest, the the lack of experience for Shane Waldron has me more intrigued than I think it has me more nervous um, just because he 
from what Jake Heaps has said o- over the air this week, um, especially in his conversations with people on the Rams staff, saying that this is a bigger loss for the Rams uh, than it might even be a gain for the Seahawks, which is, uh, you know, that's that speaks volumes to the kind of coach that Shane Waldron is. Um, so we're going to get into this conversation more coming up in this 11 o'clock hour. But before we do that, let's get to this hour's big three. Number one. Well, like we were just talking about the big news of the week, maybe the biggest coaching news in some time here in Seattle for the Seahawks. A new hire officially made the team announced Shane Waldron as the offensive coordinator and Andy Dickerson as run game coordinator officially Friday afternoon. But reports were out earlier in the week as they made the uh, final flight to Seattle to sign all their papers. Had to cross some hurdles to get there. That's why it took a little bit of time. But both Waldron and Dickerson coming from the Los Angeles Rams. Waldron was the pass game coordinator for the past three seasons there with Sean McVay. Well, Dickerson has been an assistant offensive line coach for the Rams since 2012. So we're talking St. Louis days. We're talking Jeff Fisher, middle of the pack days. So he's seen what it's like to be on both ends of the spectrum there uh, as far as offenses go. So what is this going to mean for this Seahawks offense going forward? How on board was Russell Wilson in this decision? How on board are the fans with this hire? We're going to dive into a lot of those things. Again, one of the biggest coaching hires maybe in years in this city. And the future of the Seahawks, what it all means at 11-15. Number two. Plenty of interesting quotes coming from week two of the Mariners' virtual bash as they send all their players out to meet with the media this week over Zoom and sort of put the final touches on the team as they head off to spring training next month. Well, Jared Kelnick, probably the most noteworthy player to speak this week, and he hasn't even taken an at-bat at the Major League level, but he'll definitely tell you he is ready for some of those A-Bs to come against Major League pitching. Uh, Not one to lack confidence, as he uh, called himself super, super strong this week, which, I mean, where's the lie? He he is super, super strong. Uh, But, man, oh, man, the Mariners could definitely use a – uh, injection of personality and of talent and of confidence and of swagger that Kelnick definitely brings to the table. Uh, getting more more praise this week, too, from MLB.com. Their pipeline rankings ranking Kelnick at number four and Julio Rodriguez at number five in the game's top 100 prospects. So even more accolades being sent their way. But when should we expect this next wave of talent that the Mariners have been telling us about for what seems like ages well we'll get into that conversation in this hour coming up at 11 45 you know are these players going to accelerate the timelines that the mariners have for them can the mariners afford to stick to the timelines they have for these players that's coming your way in about 30 minutes from now number three well from current top 100 prospects to maybe one of the greatest prospects of all time ken griffey jr And Major League Baseball have announced an agreement to uh, have the kid move into a senior advisor role to the commissioner, Rob Manfred. So in this move, should have been made years ago, quick sidebar, but that's neither here nor there. They finally made it, embracing Ken Griffey Jr. His role will be to focus on consulting with the commissioner's office on a variety of issues from development 
and how to improve that in the diversity at the amateur levels and just the sport in general. He'll also serve as an ambassador for the sport during the season with youth baseball initiatives and major events such as the All-Star Game and the postseason and how they can link the two together. So, look, Ken Griffey Jr. is, the, is I, I, I don't want to speak for Curtis, but I'm going to go ahead and say maybe one of the most influential athletes in my life, in his life, in our life. And to be from Seattle, to see this, to see the game respect him and his place here in the history of baseball, it's an honor to see. And I'm just so excited they've made this move because it's so needed. The game has felt a little bit stale and a little bit uncool for a little, for a a few years. And it feels like this move will help them lean into some of the things that make baseball so awesome and makes it such an amazing sport. And I couldn't be more excited. This is one of the best uh, best things to come out of Major League Baseball, I think, in some time, Curtis. What, what do you think? Absolutely. I don't think there's anything bad that can come from this. Rob Manfred needs as much help as he can get. And to get that help now from one of the biggest superstars baseball has ever had, someone with tremendous crossover appeal, even though he has been retired for now 10 seasons, 11 seasons, uh, I mean, this is just a no-brainer move that Major League Baseball has has made, and I'm glad they they're doing this. I'm glad that they are reaching out for help and and saying, you know, hey, let's get this guy who has been one of the faces of the game even long after he has played. Uh, it, there can be no bad to come from this. I I think I feel very safe in saying that. Now. The only bad I can see from this is Rob Manfred getting his fingers all over this because he is just he he's ruined the game at every turn and I, I feel like he's kind of become my new Larry Scott now that Larry Scott is mm. is out of the Pac-12. Uh, so well, you know, hopefully uh, Rob Manfred can let his people just do what they do best and he can kind of butt out, but. Uh, yeah, that is this hour's big three. Some honorable mentions this week, uh, actually this morning, some cryptic tweets already being being sent out there. Uh, Shaquille Griffin, Seahawks free agent cornerback or soon-to-be free agent cornerback, he said this exact quote on his Twitter account, said, there's no love here, I'm cool with that, uh, with a fingers-crossed emoji. So, I mean, it's cryptic. you got to love it. But uh, yeah, I, I hope he's talking about I was going to say, I hope he's talking about Twitter and not the Seahawks, but uh got a feeling it's about the Seahawks just on yeah. Twitter. I think so. Now, this that tweet reminds me last year of Jaron Reed, who also tweeted something very similar at the at the start of the offseason. Um, and it turned out fine. Reed was back with the Seahawks, had a great season a year ago, and by all accounts, he'll be back next year. Um, Maybe there's a possibility of that happening here with Shaquille Griffin, but I don't know what his price tag is going to look like outside of the Seahawks organization. There's a possibility that was the first offer he got, and that was his quick reaction to it, but, uh, you know, Shaquille Griffin uh, playing the cryptic tweet game. You got to love it from a drama standpoint, but if you're the Seahawks. Yeah, it gives us something to talk about. Gives some schmoes on Saturday from 11 to 1, some (laughs) some stuff to gossip about, and for some fans to text in, 710-710, Vizzy Hard Seltzer text line. Uh, And join the conversation about what the Seahawks should do with him, because there's a lot of other big conversations. What about Bobby Wagner? What about Jamal Adams? Mm -hmm. You got some big names 
big contracts, big decisions. They got one out of the way with the offensive coordinator, but there's still a lot of storylines left with the Seahawks. Uh, and then quickly, uh, veteran NHL play-by-play announcer John Forslund being named the TV voice of the Seattle Kraken starting next season. Just in a brief conversation I had with him uh, off the air a, a few days ago, one of the nicest guys. He is a very nice guy. Loads of play-by-play experience. You're gonna, you're really gonna like him, Seattle. I'm telling you that right now. Uh, but coming up in this hour, what do you do with Bobby Wagner? That's coming your way in about 15 minutes from now. But up next, how different can we expect Seattle's offense to look in 2021 under some new guidance? That's next year on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. Seattle Sports Saturday looking at the Shane Waldron hire as Seattle's new offensive coordinator. The move becoming official about less than 24 hours ago, even though we heard about it earlier in the week, uh, courtesy of Adam Schefter, who brought that news to the forefront. But let's take a look at how the Rams have fared recently and just how might that translate to the Seahawks offense and to the weapons that Seattle has. And Taylor, just at first glance between the Rams, before we get into the numbers here, when you look at what they've been working with on the offensive side of the ball over the last maybe two to three seasons when Sean McVay has gotten there compared to what Seattle has had, how do you sort of look at the weapons both teams have, do you think there's a clear advantage from one team to the other, or or is it sort of balanced in terms of, you know, what the quarterbacks are and and who they're working with? I I think at the beginning of the year, I think I would have said that the Rams collectively were ahead of the Seahawks, but look, DK Metcalf took a big step forward this season, and he proved to be worthy of a number one receiver slot with Tyler Lockett. I don't think the Rams have had a receiver as uh, not a lot of teams have ever had a receiver as physically dominant or who plays the game of football the way DK does. So to me, I'm I'm slightly leaning towards the Seahawks. We're going to see what this offensive line can look like next year. It was all over the place this year. It's been getting better and better each season. Um, so to me, right now, slight Seahawks advantage in the collective sort of picture of things. What do you think? Yeah, I think the Seahawks collection of, of weapons on the offensive side of the ball with Russ and Tyler and DK, and there are question marks as to who the running back is going to be, but let's let's say for this example that Chris Carson does return, I think you have a more talented group here in Seattle than you do in L.A., but you kind of wonder why then if the Seahawks do have more talent here, why have they not been able to produce at a higher clip than what they've been than than what they've shown us over the last couple of seasons. Um, you bring in Shane Waldron and you look at sort of the run pass splits uh, between the or for the Rams last year. They ran the ball a lot a year ago, about 46 percent of the time, which was sixth most in the NFL. Uh, whereas Seattle, for as much as we kind of you know, roll our eyes at the the establish the run phrase. They were middle of the road in terms of their run pass splits. Seattle was 14th 
uh, at a 59.6 pass percentage. So they called pass plays at nearly 60% of the time a year ago, um, whereas the Rams are were at about 55%, so they were 5% lower than where the Seahawks were. Do you think the Rams' reliance on the run game was A, more so because of their run game personnel, their really good offensive line, and also you know they're pretty good stable of running backs right now, led by Cam Akers. Or was it more of Jared Goff and him taking a significant step back in his development this season? I mean, it's for sure both, Curtis. Let's start there, right? Both options yeah. on the table. We're talking about them. We're considering them. I think I'm going to go Jared Goff. I think they expected more. They expected him to take that next step forward, not to be like a Russell Wilson or a Patrick Mahomes or an Aaron Rodgers, but maybe closer to like a Matt Stafford or a Matt Ryan, right, where they can get these yards, they can be schemed for, they may not have this crazy all-world talent, but they're still good quarterbacks. And I think the Rams were expecting Goff to continue to get better. He did grow a lot in the first few seasons in the NFL, but he fell off and some of it was injury. Some of it was expectations. And and I think at the end of the day, you got to look at Jared Goff and say, he's just not the guy who can push them to the next level that they needed, right? That he could get them to the playoffs, can make them a competitive team, but to truly be a Super Bowl caliber team, it doesn't appear that Jared Goff can be the leader on the offensive side and have that team also be a Super Bowl contender. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about Goff's future in L.A. coming up in NFL headlines in the 12 o'clock hour today. Um, but you look at the Seahawks right now, and we heard it earlier this week, DK Metcalf, uh, he was talking to Chad Johnson on his podcast. I think Brandon Marshall was there as well. Um, and DK mentioned that, Seattle's offense slowed down in the second half because teams had figured them out. Brian Schottenheimer, great guy, had some decent seasons calling plays for the Seahawks. But time and time again, it felt like in-game adjustments and just adjustments as the season went on never truly happened, or at least they didn't happen in the way that many people would be satisfactory with. Shane Waldron has never had the opportunity to call plays, but he comes from the Sean McVay coaching tree, which has put a lot of guys into head coaching jobs across the NFL over the last couple of seasons. I think three separate head coaches now have come from McVay's system. Waldron now on that trajectory, taking this offensive coordinator job. Uh, you know, I I wonder if Waldron will learn any or has learned from McVay, how to do those in-game adjustments and how to make sure that teams aren't able to just kind of sit back, get into a comfort level uh, against the Seahawks and and not really have to do much against the offense in order to to slow it down. Yeah, I mean, you you look at the genesis of these two guys, right, and their coaching lore, let's call it, right, for for comic book fans out there. So for Schottenheimer, it comes from his dad, right, Marty? big coach but when you look at what marty would do he was a conservative he wasn't quite mike holmgren conservative but he was on that level of being conservative and case in point the elvis gerbach rich gannon you have this young exciting quarterback he was hot 
Gerbach goes down. Gannon does great job and then comes back. He plays Gerbach over Gannon. Chiefs end up losing to a Denver Broncos team that goes on to win the Super Bowl, right? So uh, you can see where a lot of those sort of traditional stay the course, think about it my way and don't deviate led Marty and where it also led Brian. And on the flip side, Shane Waldron, I think, comes from the opposite school, the Shane, uh, Sean McVay, up tempo, keep them on their toes, mix things up, unique play calls, maximizing the most talent that you have. And thinking outside of the box and using those things to your advantage, whether it means changing it up and, and adjusting your game plan to the, the opposition at halftime or in, in the pregame show or in some at some moment, it feels like this group is more likely to do those things than the group prior. And in doing so, making it a little bit more difficult to figure them out. So with the Waldron hire, what do you think it means for Pete Carroll and his vision for the offense because in cut number one here ESPN's Will Barnwell he joined 710 ESPN earlier this week and said that this hire may show Pete is more open to modernizing the offense. I do think that you know he sort of opened up his mind a little bit and even though there's been talk about the offense going back to what it was and being more run heavy especially at earlier downs I do think that Pete has changed a little bit and I do think that overall even if it's not as pass happy as it was in the first month or month and a half of the year, like it was last year, I do think that the offense is going to be maybe more open and, and have more sort of different sort of ideas than maybe we would have seen from the Seahawks a couple of years ago if they had been hiring someone at that time to replace Brian Schottenheim. It is kind of a stark contrast from what we heard from Pete in the immediate aftermath of the season. And I would, I would imagine emotions were running high for him, uh, especially seeing the season end in the just – you know, deflating way that it did, uh, where Pete was so, you know, banging the drum for establish the run and we got to run the ball more effectively. And, you know, we got, we got away from what made us great on offense. And, but you hear stuff like that from Barnwell and you see the move from Shane Wall or to Shane Waldron on the offensive side of the ball. And I don't, necessarily think the Seahawks are going to run the ball a ton more than they did this this last year, but I think the situations in which they run uh, I think are going to be hopefully different because it got to the point where they were running ve- you know at very predictable times you know it, it's it's not so much that Seahawks fans don't want this team to run the ball more. I think they just want them to mask it or disguise it a little bit better. Yeah, I think you nailed it right there, Curtis. The the disguising, the the predictability of just doing the run, 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 play, action, pass. You know what I mean? That's not the true way to have the run game set up the passing game. And, you know, you can look at these numbers from a topical level, right, and say these are the the percentages of run pass. But there's situations in there, like you mentioned, Curtis, that dictate some of those things. And preventing yourself from kind of being pushed into a corner where you have to run or it's third and 16, you're not running a draw. I mean, well, <laughs> let me rephrase. Sometimes they would still run a draw, but they would they needed to pass. Those were situations where they knew they were needing to pass, too. So. It feels like you may, the numbers might not be drastically different, right? That 59.6 number might not be 
you know, it might be plus or minus a couple percentage points, but I think the offense to the eye test and to people watching and commentating and, and analyzing this this team, they're going to notice a significant shift in what this team does look like in those play calls. Coming up in this hour, we're going to take a look at the Mariners' next wave. When should we expect those guys to make it to the major league level? But up next, Seattle's got some interesting decisions to make on the defensive side of the ball, and they start with Bobby Wagner. What do you do with him this offseason? We talk that next here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Taylor, earlier in the show, we talked about Shaquille Griffin's sort of cryptic tweeting this morning, talking about how there's no love here and, uh, you know, other things that, uh, yeah, there's no love here. I'm cool with that. That's what he tweeted about six hours ago. So in the wee hours of the morning here, about 530 in the morning, some, some early morning tweets he was firing off there. We brought that up. The text came in from the Vizyard Seltzer text line, uh, just kind of asking what their reaction to that was. Uh, plenty of texts not feeling Shaquille Griffin's words this morning. Now, whether or not it's about the Seahawks or, or anything else, who knows? But uh, three six zero, just they say from day one, I've just never been excited about Shaquille Griffin. If we lose him, I don't care. Uh, two oh six, another two oh six number says average corner. Time to move on. Uh, another 206 number says, no love. Dude, you have like three interceptions in 60 games. You want $14 million. Uh, pretty, pretty, you know, eye-opening just how quickly people can turn on you. Uh, Shaquille Griffin, very nice guy. Uh, but, you know, he's trying to get that get that bag, secure that bag that uh, he feels he's owed. And, I mean, that's just life in the NFL for you. Yeah, and I think, Curtis, the writing was on the wall with this one, right? And we, we, we sort of knew that this is where it was going, that he was playing at a, a top DB level amongst, you know, the, the NFL experts and analysts saying that he's one of the top. He's not one of the best, and he's not the best, but he's in that group of really good DBs, right? And so av- saying he's average with the number of interceptions, uh we know where the defense was at the beginning of the year and even at the end of last year. So I wouldn't necessarily put all of those numbers. It's not reflective of what his impact was, but he, I wouldn't necessarily go out and say that you need to pay him like the top DB either, because he's not quite there yet as well. So it, it just feels like another team is going to offer him that, that contract that will make him happy and he's earned it. Right, that's what free agency is about. You earn the right to go out there and find it. And he played his contract. He was a model citizen here. He and his brother, personally, I have a great relationship with them. I've been playing video games with them a couple of times. They've been great to me. So I'm taking that out of it. Of course, you got to think about it from a financial decision. And this team is cap strapped. So to go out and sign a DB to a top level contract feels like it's just. It's not going to happen, and I think this is the first sort of hint of things to come in that situation. Now, if the Seahawks do decide to bring Shaquille Griffin back, and you know, who knows? That still could very well happen this offseason. 
they're going to have to get creative with that cap space that they have, and it's not much. Right? I believe Track has them at about $171 million right now in, in cap uh, in, of contracts that they're going to have to pay out this season as it currently stands. With the salary cap ending up somewhere between 175 and 180 million, that's not a lot of room to play for to enter the off season. And one person that I think a lot of people have pointed to as, you know, a quick fix for cap space, unfortunately is this probably the second most important player on your roster and that's Bobby Wagner, longtime Seahawk, perennial All-Pro. Uh, just one of the great dudes that, that the Seahawks organization has ever had. But he's on the other side of 30. Um, I don't know if his game is getting better at this stage in his career. I think he may have kind of plateaued. What do you do with Bobby Wagner? Is his greatest value to the Seahawks still on the roster, still as the leader of the defense, as the mouthpiece of the defense? Or is his greatest value to the Seahawks in 2021 as added cap space, or maybe you can trade him and get some draft capital back because they only have four picks. Taylor, it's a tough call on, on players like this, but every organization is faced with these kinds of decisions. I mean, heck, we saw it last year with the Patriots having to get rid of the greatest quarterback ever, Tom Brady, in order to advance themselves. Uh, forward as an organization, and you know, it's still a lot of questions about that decision. Seeing as Brady is going to play in his tenth Super Bowl next week, but when you look at Bobby Wagner and sort of his future in Seattle, what do you think the decision will be on him uh, over the next couple of months? Uh, it's that's a great question because again. We- this, this sort of popped up this week, people looking at the, the salary cap and his contract and his impact. And if it were me, this is just my opinion. Bobby Wagner is the guy I want to be a year late with. And that's okay with me. Earl Thomas and those guys, you want to be a year early on getting out on. I'm okay being a year late with Bobby because of what a leader he is. And the respect he gets from the other players in the league the all-pro, constant all-pro accolades that he gets year in, year out. Yes, his numbers aren't like um, who's uh, the linebacker for the Bucs, David. um, Oh, Levante David, yeah. Levante David, thank you. So I know he doesn't put up the numbers like Levante David, who's making half as much, but I don't think the Bucs defense looks to David in the same way the Seahawks defense looks to Bobby and what he does for the people around him. And, you know, in, I'm going to go back to some uh, middle school here. When you're doing that, like, toothpick, when you're building the toothpick bridges, right, and you've you <laughs> got to put all the weights on, Bobby is that cornerstone toothpick, right? That, yes, he is the same as the other players as far as when you look at it, but He's so important, and he's so uh, integral to the structure of this defense. And I, I understand people looking at the cap and wanting to make money. I just don't think Bobby's contract is the place to look. And I, I think you you have to live with that. And if that's the decision we have to live with, looking at where this defense ended, again, I think I'm okay living with Bobby being a, a year 
past due and us living with that, if it's going to look like what this defense looked like at the end of the year? What do you think, Curtis? Is there any sort of way you could make a move with Bobby to get some some cap space? Uh, maybe you ask him to restructure. I think another big way for them to regain some cap space is by declining Carlos Dunlap's option for next season because he's due to make about $15 million, and I think most of it counts against the salary cap. Um, so if you're the Seahawks, that's an easy fix for some cap relief because then that takes you from about $4 million to close to $20 million, which I think you can get Dunlap back here under that, you know, fifteen million dollar option that he would have uh that he's, you know, got an option for. Um but to me I think Bobby Wagner with that whole ten million dollars against the cap that he could te- potentially save you. I mean we were having these exact conversations a year ago about KJ Wright and where would Seattle's defense have been this season without K.J. Wright? I don't think it would have been anywhere near. I mean, yeah, the defense was really bad for a a big part of the season, but the turnaround at the midway point, I think K.J. Wright was instrumental in that, Um, and now K.J. is on the verge of striking it rich again, You know, getting a pretty decent payday. I'd love to see him back, but who knows how that's going to look. but also, if you do move on from Wagner, you have the reinforcement already here in in place in Jordan Brooks, who was taken in the first round and and played well in 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 you know sort of a backup role this year or in, in sort of a limited role. But um, if I'm the Seahawks, I think you would not be smart to simply ignore Wagner's contract situation and and ignore what he could possibly get you on the open market or get you on the trade market, especially with the four draft picks you only have right now. But how many draft picks are are, our teams going to give up for a a linebacker that's going to be, what, 31 years old this this upcoming season? It's not going to be a lot. And, And if they do, it's going to be, you know, maybe a second or third round pick at at the very best, which is something that is better than what the Seahawks have right now, but it's not something that is going to, I think, change the fortune of your franchise uh, in a massive, massive way. I think the Bobby Wagner stuff is going to be, I think it's going to be the most important decision they make this offseason, and that's even more so than the Jamal Adams uh, negotiations, which we're going to get to uh, coming up in the next hour. But uh, Bobby is just, you know, for as valuable as he has been to this organization, um, there there does come a time for everyone to to kind of see their their time run out with an organization. Totally agree. And four two five texting in. Look, I understand he hasn't put up these gaudy numbers, but four two five saying he hasn't shined for two years is false. He has a big contract. Is he worth the big contract? That's a that's the conversation. But to say he hasn't shined, you're talking about first team all pro, AP and pro football focused last year. First team all pro, AP, pro football focus, pro football weekly. Like he has been first team all pro for almost his entire career. So to say he hasn't been shining is false. But to say is he worth it? Now that's the debate, and that's something we want to hear from you on. Text in 710-7710, Vizzy Hard Seltzer text line. Let us know. Is Bobby worth that big contract next year? We want to hear from you. 
We do. That is the Visi Hard Seltzer text line for you. Coming up in the next hour, we'll get you a big three from a national perspective. But before we do that, Mariners talking a lot this week, including Jared Kelnick, the prize of the farm system. When is the time right for the Mariners' next wave? We get into that next year on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Been waiting on that next wave of Mariners talent to come through, and they are about as close to knocking on the door as possible. They are definitely, they got a foot on the porch, and, you know, they're reaching for it. You can see them in your door cam if you have one of those. They haven't yet rang that doorbell yet, Taylor, but they're, they are very much ready to set foot inside this house because you look at just the amount of hype that the prospect rankings have given the Mariners farm system over the last few weeks. It started with baseball America having uh, Kelnick and Rodriguez as the number three and number four prospects in all of baseball. Uh, MLB pipeline has them at number four, number five, and then also has both Kelnick and Rodriguez as the top two outfield prospects in baseball, which I believe is a first in the history of MLB's pipeline rankings that the top two prospects for a single position have been in the same organization, uh, which is just an incredible, uh, incredible, you know, potential there for that. But I wonder, Taylor, if the Mariners right now are maybe hindering themselves from competing at the highest level by continuing to keep Jared Kelnick down, specifically him. And, you know, we don't know how close Julio Rodriguez is right behind him because he is younger than Kelnick. So theoretically, he's still a a little bit longer away in his development. But if these guys continue to perform at, you know, incredible levels in minor league baseball, you would hope that the Mariners recognize that and then say, you know what, we're ready for our, our major league team to benefit from this talent. Look, the team is right there, but this season, this upcoming season, isn't going to be it. We missed a full year of minor league baseball last year. They missed some of those reps. They missed some of that just live ball action, which is so, so important in baseball. And you hear Shannon Dreyer talk about it all the time that even with Mitch Haniger, right? You can you can be in all those simulated situations. You can be in a cage. But until you step into the box with live heat, you, you, you can't really simulate it. So to me, the tempering of expectations just needs to be a little bit longer. And I hate saying that. Look, I've been a Mariners fan my whole life, too. I understand this feeling of it feels like it'll never end. But on the flip side, Curtis, I don't think I've ever been this excited about the youth core coming up through the farm system ever. Like, look, I wasn't, I was a kid when A Rod was coming through the system. Uh, you know, in 2001, when you were starting to see Ichiro come through, and well, not really our minor league system, but come into the Mariners organization, you saw that sort of new generation, Felix Hernandez on the way. There's just never been this core of players. You've had one, maybe a couple, maybe even three at one time, three pitchers, but 
you've never really had the position players and pitchers and all of them spread out and considered to be at the top and this and that, right? It just keeps adding up. And this, this is not the same old M's. And I refuse to believe that anymore because when you look at how this team is built for the future and next season when they can be buyers, because a lot of these guys like Kelnick and Rodriguez will be at the, the major league level and you can fill in some little uh, gaps in the roster, they're a season away, but this season is about slowly bringing Kelnick up, in my opinion, slowly bringing Rodriguez up. Don't rush them because, again, this th- you're not pushing this year. You're still learning and growing. Yeah, and, and you look at – you mentioned how the Mariners have kind of had these one-off prospects you know, hit every now and then, but there hasn't been a wave like this that we've seen really in a long time, and I think the only other time – we can kind of point to in the Mariners franchise history would be the late eighties, early nineties, when you had Griffey and you had Randy Johnson and Jay Buhner and Edgar, those guys were around the same age when they all broke through to the big leagues and and latched on with the Mariners. I know Johnson and and Buhner were, didn't necessarily come up through the minor league system, but they were acquired as young players as well. Um, But I think right now, this group that the Mariners have, you don't want to baby them too much because then you run the risk of them falling or at least failing at the minor league level when maybe they were ready to get major league at bats. Um, You know, I look at this group right now and, you know, I wonder if their performances early on in the minor league season will maybe kind of dictate you know, an earlier clock than the Mariners had anticipated. And I wonder if the Mariners are going to be ready for that Um, because, you know, we've heard from multiple people that sort of within the Mariners front office, there is a motto right now that says discipline is the shortcut. And while that is not fun when you see guys like Nolan Arenado get traded last night or or Francisco Lindor get traded a couple weeks ago, Um, you know, generational players, guys who are franchise changing talents, um, you know, it it stinks to watch those guys get traded and know that the Mariners have the prospects to acquire those kinds of players, but also they still have those prospects and there is an opportunity for those prospects to develop into a player I'm not going to say at the level of Lindor or Arenado or any of those guys because that's to heap those kinds of expectations on any prospect is unfair because those guys have reached peaks that rarely ever get reached. But there is that potential. And, you know, this is a Mariners team that has not had much potential in, you know, 20 years. And I think right now this this group that they have, the top-end talent of it, better than anything we have ever seen come through here. Um, We did read, though, this week in Ryan Divish's column with the Seattle Times that the Mariners front office reportedly playing sort of a wait-and-see mode before committing big dollars to the rebuild, basically saying if these prospects do amount to, to something, then we will open up our checkbooks. Do you think that is the right way to approach it? Sort of the Mariners saying, you know, prove it first and then we'll surround you with talent. Because I look at a team like the Padres, they didn't wait around for Fernando Tatis Jr. to become a superstar before going out and getting Manny Machado. It's a great point. But to me, I feel like the Padres really 
I don't want to say got lucky. That's not right. I feel like they really hit, and all those things came together perfectly for them. For the Mariners, it is still this wait. And I know the text coming in from the 253 saying, next year it'll be, oh, we're a year away. Maybe a year away from being the the top of the top at the at the major league level. But they will be playoff contenders next year if everything continues to grow. And to me, that's perfect. Why waste the money now, right? What, a top-level player getting, you know, 15 to 20 million dollars this next year great for the player what does it really do for the organization that knows they're not going to be pushing and if they are pushing with the roster they have now then you can go back and reward some of the guys who helped make that push so you're right curtis san diego they hit it they nailed it with tatis and machado it worked for them i don't think it would work for us i'm okay with them being a little bit more cautious and and being a little bit more not skeptical but cautious as i guess is the word you would use to just handle this situation and and approach it coming up in the next hour we'll get you a big three some national stories including that big trade in major league baseball last night and then also we'll get you some nfl headlines as well in the noon hour he's taylor jacobs i'm curtis rogers keep it locked here on seattle sports saturday